Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can get one in your hand. Colossians chapter 1. And we'll pick up with where we left off. Uh, I say, well, where was that? Well, I'll tell you. That is starting in verse 13. So we did verses 9 through 12. We've been breaking these into small chunks, and, and, and that's not, a, not that unusual with the epistles. There's so much doctrinal truth. There's so much practical application that you, you, you want to make sure that you take it in and use it and apply it in your life. And, and with some of the things that Paul writes to the church, he reminds them of things that, uh, that we don't want to fade or forget about in the body of Christ today. In fact, we want to grow in the faith of these things. But we'll pick it up with where we left off in verse 13, a beautiful passage starting in verse 13, especially in light of the darkness and evil that, uh, that, that we just kind of hear through the news today. Look at verse uh, 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Isn't that great to know? And conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's Valentine's Day. Love is used a lot, but this is the real deal right here. This is the love of God. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we just ask that you, Father, would have the preeminence in our minds and our hearts tonight, that your spirit, Lord, uh, would speak, minister, and Lord, comfort us, calm us, uh, correct us, conform us, whatever we need, Lord, that you would do that work here tonight. We love you and we thank you for your word. Use it in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we looked at what we need in the filling of the Holy Spirit. You still think you need the filling of the Holy Spirit? A week later, and here I am coming up on 20, I don't know, 23, 24 years of salvation, and I, and I know I still need the filling of the Holy Spirit week after week. And we looked at the focus of our life that we need to have that focus of pleasing God and walking worthy of the gospel. And that's a, that's a big task because we know the perfection of God. We know the perfection of the gospel. But he's given us the Holy Spirit to do it. And we looked at uh, what Christ had done for us um, in, in so many ways in the first few verses. But tonight we'll look at some more things that Christ has done for us and who he is in us, but who he is, period, uh, in the universe, who he is uh, in the place of all of history, who he is in the heaven of heavens. Uh, so things that Christ has done for us, we continue to look at the things he's done for us uh, that we need. We need that filling of the Holy Spirit, but we need these things too that Paul enumerates. And But who is Jesus in addition to all the things that we need? Who is he? And as we look at these things tonight, these are just a glimpse of his glory, just a glimpse of the grace uh, that he's bestowed upon us. And we're going to start out tonight uh, looking at the first of three things if you're taking notes. The first here is his deliverance. 
Sometimes my clicker needs deliverance. Uh, there we go. Now we got it working. I don't know. We even have this. Is this the new one or the old one? I don't, they look alike, but they don't always. They're kind of irritable with me sometimes. But anyway, I digress. Uh, so Paul says in Romans chapter seven, verses twenty-three, twenty-four. He said, "Oh wretched man that I am." Not that he was. Do you still feel wretched? You still see uh, in the mirror of God's word uh, that, that our righteousness really is filthy rags. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Romans eleven twenty six, he says, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And certainly he's turned it away from more than just Jacob, that being the nation state of Israel, but he's turned it away from us here in Virginia, from our brothers and sisters in Africa and China and Southeast Asia and all around the world, Brazil, South America. Jesus delivers us from ourselves. He alone delivers us from our own wretchedness. So first and foremost, he delivers us from ourselves. We, we're born in sin. We don't, we don't have to go do something specifically uh, to be condemned. We're born in sin. It's part of what we're passed on, it's passed on to us through the sin nature in Adam. We need deliverance from three chains that we cannot break on our own. Three chains every person needs delivered from that we cannot break on our own. The first is ourselves. We need deliverance from ourselves. What is that? The sin nature that we're in. So every person, you might have a different name. You certainly have a different soul. You have a different, uh, God sees you individually different, every single person different. But each person cannot break the chains of themselves. Each person is born with a sin nature tied to them personally. Second, we need deliverance from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. Well, what is that? Well, it's, it's death, but then beyond that, it's eternal death, separation from God, and a literal hell. So the penalty of death, we need, um, or the penalty of sin, which well, they're one and the same, uh, so we need deliverance from that chain as well. And the third, we need to be delivered from the kingdom we're born into. There's a dark, worldly kingdom that we're born into. We need deliverance. We can't break out of any of those chains. It's outside of our ability to do so. And Paul is conveying here a deliverance from the third of those chains here, the power of darkness. The power of darkness. Jesus has destroyed the death grip that Satan has on anyone who has put their faith in Christ. Aren't you glad? He's removed that death grip that Satan has, or maybe had, uh, on, hopefully had on everyone here, but it, he still has that grip on many. He's delivered us from that. In Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18, um, speaking to, uh, Jesus was speaking to Paul, red letter in your Bible, I will deliver you from the Jewish people. That's not really the chain we're talking about, as well as from the Gentiles, because remember, the people that came against Paul were coming from the same kingdom of darkness. So it's, this, it's not really people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? So when Jesus said, I'm delivering you from 
the Jews as well as the Gentiles. It's really not them, but I'm delivering you, because he goes on, from the power behind that. To whom I will now send you to open their eyes, our eyes were once dark, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan, there it is, to God. Acts chapter 26, verse 17, 18. From the power of Satan. Satan does have power. And he does uh, rule this earthly kingdom. He has no power over God. We'll get to that uh, near the end of this evening. But he does have a lot of power for the kingdom he controls. The scripture uses the term saved. Saved, what? Because we're rescued from sin. We're rescued from eternal death. And we're rescued from the darkness that enslaves and deceives the whole world. The world is being deceived. You know, when they, when they said, let's get, let's get the Bible out of the schools, that was a deception. Let's get prayer out of the schools because, you know what, that, that really confuses people. I mean, like things like the Ten Commandments. We want to get rid of them because... When it says, thou shalt not murder, that, that's such a harmful thing to teach. Or not to commit adultery, or not to lie. Right? It's a deception to say, these things, we need to remove these kind of things. And that's just, obviously, that's from the, from the governmental side. But that doesn't fix the issue of each human heart. People are self-deceived. You can actually know the Ten Commandments, but not be born again. Right? Many people know, many people grew up in church and are still not born again. So the deception... The darkness of this age, we need deliverance from ourselves. We need deliverance from the penalty of sin. We need deliverance from the darkness around us. But Satan is constantly trying to keep people in chain to keep the deception. And if you break out of one deception, he'll sell you another one. It's why Jesus is the Savior, right? Savior. He reaches in and he can crush all of those chains. Savior in the Greek, soter, means deliverer. Deliverer. So when you see that term, deliverance, deliverer, savior, it also means preserver. So even after we're saved, we need Jesus preserving us. Amen? The same word means preserver as well. So he's my savior and he's my preserver. And so he is for you as well. But uh, that, as a matter of fact, that term preserver um, used 24 times in the New Testament. And all throughout the Old Testament, God is the deliverer of his people. So if you read the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, uh, the del deliverer of Israel as a nation from evil rulers, pharaohs, kings, Nebuchadnezzars, and the like, uh, men like David and Elijah, delivered from wicked men that oppose God. So God delivers individuals as well as nations. But the wicked men that try to enslave or destroy the people of God are always lowercase antichrist. Everyone that tries to destroy God or remove God or remove the gospel or remove the knowledge of Jesus or remove the people of God, they are lowercase antichrist. They're not the antichrist. There is finally an antichrist that will set up a world system on a scale the world has never seen before. The technology and everything else is building towards that capability but all the other antichrists, false teachers, all kinds of groupings of antichrists, lowercase antichrists, were forerunners to the final antichrist, the final culmination of where all prophecy is headed to. In 1 John 2.18, it 
We know this is the case because John says, even now, many antichrists, lowercase, plural, many antichrists have come. Many. Many means what? Many. On all continents, except perhaps Antarctica. Unless there's some scientists down there doing antichrist things. I don't know. But, uh, but generally speaking, all throughout time, there has been well-known assaults. People had great power, like an Adolf Hitler or a Nebuchadnezzar or things like that, but, but many smaller attacks. But understand that the little Antichrist, plural and lowercase, and the final Antichrist, this person who will be literally possessed by Satan, represent the what? They represent the kingdom of darkness. Satan's behind it, but he has to have puppets. He uses human beings uh, to do the work that he's behind. It's called in the Bible the spirit of Antichrist. Have you ever heard that term? It's called the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of darkness, which is from Satan. So this deliverance is one from Satan. Back to your Bibles here. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, not just from something, but to something. To, he conveyed us into to or into the kingdom of the son of his love. Wouldn't you rather be with the son of love than the ruler of darkness? So he's delivered us from Satan to the Savior, from a dark and desperate place to the son of his love. Isn't it wonderful to come out of a kingdom that's birthed in rebellion into one that's born out of love, or born into love? Satan hates us. Did you know that? And the more you do for God, the more he hates you. If you don't do anything for God, he doesn't hate you near as much, and he won't even bother you near as much. If you want to live a lukewarm life, he probably will leave you alone. If you live a lukewarm life your whole life, Jesus might knock on your heart and say, do you really know me? He does that, by the way, in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 there. Satan hates us. God's Son loves us. What a, what a complete contrast. Satan hates us. God loves us. The Son of God loves us. Look, look, let's look at the next one. His, his redemption. We looked at his deliverance. His redemption. Deliverance, and uh, by the way, that is found in verse 14, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Say, well, I already know that. That's great. You're here anyway. You're going to... We'll talk about it some more. In whom we have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sin. Deliverance and redemption. Deliverance, redemption. Very closely connected terms from a theological perspective. From a theological perspective, they're tied together. Deliverance and redemption always will go together. Why? Well, we need deliverance and we need redemption. Amen? That's why Paul mentions them in two separate verses. We need both. But they're two sides of the same coin. We need to be rescued and we need to be reborn. We need to be rescued and reborn. You know, when Moses was taken out of the, out of the water, little baby in the basket, right? Baby was rescued, but then it kind of had a rebirth because it had a new lease on life inside the house of Pharaoh and, and well taken care of. And God does that. We're not just rescued, but he rebirths us and we have a whole new life. 
We need to be pulled out of the darkness. But then even as we're pulled out of the darkness, the chains have to be taken off us, right? Remember when uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead? He was alive, but then they had to unwrap the grave clothes, right? Those things have to come off. We, a full exchange of our condition must take place. The Greek word here, it means a releasing affected by, uh, the word redemption that is, uh, the Greek word here, a releasing affected by payment of ransom, liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. Hmm. So a payment is made. A ransom payment, you know, like a million dollar trillion. Jesus said, what could, what could you give to exchange for a soul? So it has to be a lot more than a trillion dollars, right? This is a massive ransom payment. But this redemption tied to the word redeemer, Jesus is our redeemer. He's the one that provides the redemption. He's our exchanger. He's the converter, the converter of our soul. He's our rescuer. He's the one that makes the payment on our behalf. In the Old Testament, you probably saw this uh, term in the book of Ruth. He's the kinsman redeemer, right? Kinsman redeemer. But why kinsman? Because everyone that he redeems becomes family. We become part of the family of God. He redeems us from being outside the family, adopted into the family of God. Job, and not just, not just our kinsman redeemer, but uh, Job says, I know my redeemer lives. I will stand with him on that day. He purchases our redemption that we would actually live eternally with him. And so what is, the, what is it that affects this payment? What is it that makes this payment complete? Well, he says here, through his blood is the forgiveness of sin. This is what pays for our release. It's the blood of Jesus purchased through his death. That's the ransom payment. There's no other form of payment that could ever bring about redemption. No other form of payment. Say, well, what if, what if 10 million men died on crosses? Wouldn't be a drop in the bucket. What if everyone did it? If everyone led a crucifixion? Or wouldn't matter. This was the only payment God would take. The only payment God would take. There's no other payment God would take. Not our works, not a religious life, not a pattern of memorized prayers, not material gifts, not sacrifices, only the blood of Jesus. Now, once you believe that, it's quite liberating, amen? Say, there's nothing that I can do except say, yes, Lord. Ephesians 2.13 says, you who once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood actually pulls us in. As it ran down the cross and down in the dirt, literally that same blood was pulling men to himself. There's a spiritual power in the blood of Christ. I don't think we'll, we'll recognize a lot of these things until we see him face to face. We'll learn a whole lot more and say, well, no pastor ever preached that because none of us knew it. There's things that are way beyond all of us. We read what it says, and we're only touching the tip of the iceberg, spiritually speaking. Hebrews 9.22 says, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. But again, not just any blood. It had to be his blood. 
And Paul doesn't get into it here. But understand that it wasn't just that Jesus, he doesn't mention this, but I want to mention it. He mentions in other places uh, some of these things, but it wasn't just that Jesus had to shed his blood, but it had to be specifically done. He had to suffer. He had to suffer. The Bible makes it clear Jesus had to suffer. It had to be Christ willingly laying down. He couldn't be kidnapped and captured. He had to willingly give his life. Remember, even when they came to him in the garden, he spoke and the whole troop fell backwards. That should have been their first clue to me that, hey, we might not want to arrest him. But, I mean, how many times had that ever happened to them before? Zero, before or after. But nevertheless, he wasn't kidnapped. He, willing, he said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. He had to willingly give his life. It had to be on a cross. Even, even in Psalms, David prophesied that his hands would be pierced, his feet would be pierced, long before crucifixion was even a form of capital punishment. It had to be outside the city of Jerusalem. It could not be within inside the city walls. It had to be outside. He had to suffer outside the city. And it had to be according to each and every prophecy. Every single one of them had to be fulfilled precisely. Then his blood was shed. But everything had to be, the stage had to be set perfectly. Then his blood would be shed. Remember when uh, God told Abraham, take Isaac to a mountain I will show you. It couldn't be anywhere. He couldn't say, how about if I just do it in the backyard? He said, no, no, you have to go. Matter of fact, he would take him to Jerusalem, to the very place where Jesus would later be crucified. It had to be a specific place in a specific way. The blood had to be shed a certain way. Jesus couldn't have been beheaded. You realize it? He could not. It had to be crucifixion. Well, why? Well, I don't know. God has never told us why. Some of it we can understand. Some of it we don't. It's just God says, this is how... By the way, God's this way with everything. He says, this is how it's going to be done. That's, that's it. There's no more debate. Say, well, I think it... Well, how about if it was a hanging? Wouldn't work. Had to be crucifixion. Not just the shed blood, but each detail mattered. If you've read the Old Testament, you get a glimpse of details matter to God. Have you ever noticed that? If you've read the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament, but if you've read the meticulous detail that the priest had to go through just to do a sacrifice, you're like, what is, how can I remember all these steps? Well, you had a lot of other people helping you remember because the priesthood was a, was a good number of uh, men that were dedicated to that service. But the meticulous detail, the animal sacrifices, had to be carried out exactly, precisely the same way every time. It was a, why? Because that was a foreshadow of the meticulous and sovereign details of the spotless Lamb of God. All those details, God says, when my son is, all the prophecies will line up, everything will match, it has to be that detail. Why the cross? Again, we don't know. But here's some things we do know about the cross that give us a glimpse of why God used the cross. We've got this big cross up here on the wall. When someone hangs on a cross... It was intensely public. Intensely public. Jesus said I had to be lifted up from the earth. Then I would draw all men to myself. He had to be lifted up. They, they would lift a cross up and they'd drive it into the ground. It was shameful. It was humiliating. But all the other reasons we don't know, by the way. 
because Jesus died publicly, we're called to live a public life for Christ. You are not called, I am not called, to, for people to find out I was a Christian at my funeral at 92. Oh, but one last detail about so-and-so. They were a Christian. What? Jesus died publicly that we would live publicly. Amen? But redemption was only in the blood, and that blood had to be shed precisely as the Father ordained it. Everything had to be exactly precise. In verse 20, look ahead, uh, same chapter, verse 20. It says, uh, him who reconciled all things to himself by him, whether things on earth in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his what? Cross. Cross. Had to be through the blood of the cross. Couldn't be through the blood of the guillotine. Couldn't be through the blood of any other means. Uh, firing squad. None of that would work. Of course, they didn't have guns then, but arrows and things like that, they did. Had to be through the blood of his cross. One last note here. The blood of Jesus does more than just redeem us from the penalty or from the chains. Guess what else it does? It cleanses us. Not just for eternity's sake from salvation, but it keeps cleansing, right? I don't know about you, but I still get spiritually dirty. Even on Valentine's, some of you spouses might not have been perfect today with your choice of attitude, right? Things like that. What's a small sin to us is still enough to separate us from, from God. So the blood of Jesus is more than save us. It is an ongoing work of cleansing us. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses, it's an ongoing work, us from all sin. Why we have an advocate with him to continue to, to go before the blood. We can go into the Holy of Holies, which only the priest could go once a year at the Day of Atonement, only once a year. We can go to the Holy of Holies. As a matter of fact, we need to go to the Holies every day. Amen? Where the mercy seat was, where the blood was sprinkled, because we need the blood to continue to keep us in the freedom and the liberty that God has purchased on our behalf. And that's something to be very thankful for, isn't it? That we don't have to wait when we mess up. We get to go right in to the mercy seat. Lord, I need that blood again. Not to be saved, but to be clean so we can continue to be that public witness that Jesus has called us to be. Let's look at the next one. His deliverance, his redemption. How about his revelation? Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We're looking mainly here at this first half of the verse. He is the image of the invisible God. When Jesus stepped into the world as a baby in Bethlehem, God descended in human flesh. We know this. Christmas was not that long ago. We remember this in a yearly basis. If you, well, of course, we're not to only remember it then. But when the angel spoke to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, he said that you're to call his name what? Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, not a substitute of God, not, hey, this is a representative of God, like angels would be a representative of God. No, no, he says God with us, God himself, Yahweh with us. The revealing of Jesus to the world is the revealing of God the Father to the world. 
the revealing of Jesus to the world is revealing God. In John 14, 9, Jesus said himself, he said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one, he said. Of course, we know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And at the baptism of Jesus, we see all three at the same place, right? Remember, God speaks, Jesus is baptized, and the dove, the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove, and we see all three members of the Trinity there. Not when well, you can't see God. He's invisible. Even there, we see the invisible God. Why? Because God does what? He speaks. But Jesus is visible, and even the Holy Spirit has the visibility of the dove, at least at that, at that one time. We don't see other times like this, but um, any, we see the three and one there. But the world in its sinful state, in our own sinful state, every person ever born, from Adam and Eve till the last person that's born in the last 10 seconds, somewhere on earth, someone's been born. A few seconds ago, well, this will keep happening through the night. But the world in its sinful state, every human ever born, no person could ever look at God the Father in their human flesh and live. The Bible says no man can look at God and live. It would kill us instantly to look at a holy God in our sinful flesh, in our sinful state that we're born into. So God veiled his glory and came in the likeness of man. Now, when Jesus came, he was all God and all man. This is really hard for us to think because we think in terms of 50-50, right? Not 100-100. That would make 200%. But no, in God's math, because he, he's above math, which is good when you have kids that are studying math. You know, try, 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 hey, remember, God's over this thing. He, he can help unlock the mind. But he's 100% God and 100% man. The God-man. All God, all man. But the only perfect man, and yet 100% God, in the likeness of men. He veiled that glory to come and reveal himself to men. To teach, to preach, and ultimately to go to the cross. But Christ revealed himself fully as, the scriptures call him, the Son of Man. The Son of Man being that he has uh, originally... You know, Adam, there was no mother that birthed Adam, but there is a line where Jesus has humanity, comes from Mary, but his father is God the Father from the Holy Spirit. But he's fully man, fully the Son of God. So he's called Son of Man and Son of God in the Scriptures. The invisible God made visible in the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ. Now, this has a theological term that you've probably heard. This is called the incarnation. The incarnation. That God would descend and become and take on human flesh is that term. Incarnation. Cyril of Alexandria, not Alexandria, Virginia, but Cyril of Alexandria, <laughs> way before Alexandria, Virginia was around, he said, in the person of Christ, a man has not become God. God has become man. The person of Christ is not, uh, person of Christ, in the person of Christ, a man has not become God. God has become man. Jesus came down as God, but took on the form of a man. And by the way, so that was a revelation in his earthly ministry. The apostle said, we touched 
We touched and handled him in human flesh. We heard him ourselves. We saw the nail prints. We saw his resurrected body. They said all of these things we saw, but by the way, his earthly revelation is not the last revelation. Did you know there's another revelation coming? We're told what it's, what it's going to look like. We're told that Jesus will come on a white horse in blazing light with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We can kind of get some mental picture of it, but we have no real comprehension of this whatsoever. I can't wait to meet him in the clouds. How about you? That's a different revelation. That's a revelation that no one has seen. Even those that are in heaven have not met him in the clouds. Gonna, you know, there's a newness that God's going to give to everyone for that moment. Even those, even our brothers and sisters who are already in heaven are going to get some new amazing moment with being caught up with Jesus in the cloud that they've not even experienced yet. There's another revelation coming. There's another coming coming. Amen? Let's look at the next. His revelation. His creation. It's not our creation, is it? His creation. It goes on, middle of verse 15, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. We can see the principalities and powers in the angelic world, the spirit world. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, if someone doesn't believe that Jesus is God, they won't believe he's the creator either. Right? If they don't believe Jesus is God, they're certainly not going to believe he's creator. You, you talk to most people in the office, even people that are religious, that have an inkling. If you ask, hey, did Jesus create the world? They'll look at you like you're from outer space. Like, what? He did, uh, he did some miracles. One time he turned uh, something into something. Or, you know, they, but they won't usually think of him as creator. Of course, by the witness of Scripture and the life and ministry of Jesus, we know he's both. He is the Savior. We know he's God, right? But he's also creator. He is the creator. Jesus didn't just come into the world, but he came into the very world he created. He didn't come into a world that, well, if the Father created the world. I've never really been there. I think, I'll no, he was there at the beginning. Let us make man in our image, Genesis chapter 1. He died on a tree of his own creation. The tree he died on, he had created. He spoke the trees into existence. Um, he died at the hands of men he had breathed life into. How about that? Paul is reminding the Colossians now remember, in, in this time period, and, and it's not just in this time period, there's still many pagan forms today. And, uh, but in this time period, as Paul's reminding the Colossians, many of the people there in Colossae and, and uh, Asia Minor, uh, many of them came from the former worship of pagan deities. And if, you, if you've studied anything about pagan religion, especially the ancient pagan religion, many of them were associated with various aspects of nature, Right? Gods of thunder, gods of lightning, gods of oceans, gods of everything. You can think of animal life, anything you can think of, a pantheon of things, right? All these different forms of nature and so on. That everything 
Jesus was the creator of everything in the visible world, as well as everything in the invisible world. It was created by Jesus. Now, it's interesting today. Most people in history believe, you know, today we have uh, more, at more time in history, we have more people that today would call themselves, of course, Romans 1 says they're really not, they would call themselves an atheist. I love the title of Ray Comfort's book, God Does Not Believe in Atheist. I, I, I agree with that term because Romans 1 says that they suppress the truth. They actually know there's a God, and they'll tell themselves they're blue in their face. They're not. But aside from that spiritual insight that God gives us, many people today would say, I don't believe there's anything out, outside of what I can see. So I, there's a wood pulpit, but there's, there's no spirit realm. God says there is a spirit realm. Jesus spoke directly to the spirit realm in his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, they're a spirit realm, the perfection of the Godhead, but then there's other spirit realm that we can't see. So there's a visible and an invisible world, but most ancient people believed in both. They believed in the visible world, and they believed. That's why they had a pantheon of gods. That's why they had polytheism, right? Gods for every little thing, because they believed in the visible world and the invisible world. And let me remind you, scriptures verify clearly the seen and the unseen realm, don't they? Not just the physical realm, which, which are those things we can perceive with the senses, but the spiritual realm, and again, many people today don't even believe there is a spiritual realm. There's people that do. There's people that don't. Uh, whether they do or don't doesn't negate the fact that there is a spiritual realm. In fact, amazingly enough, even the physical realm is made up of the unseen, isn't it? Even the physical realm is made up of the unseen. We know the unseen is unseen, but the seen is even made up of unseen. How do we know this? Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11.13, By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen are not made of things that are visible. Hebrews 11.3. The Bible establishes that everything that you can see is made up of unseen things. Science is starting to figure this. This, is tr this has always been true. That yes, the unseen world is unseen, but the seen world is also made up of these unseen things. Today, we can get smaller and smaller. Like atoms can now be seen by electron microscopes. You can see atoms by electron microscope. By the way, Daniel the prophet, Daniel prophesied that in the latter days, knowledge would increase so people would actually get big-headed with their knowledge and think, well, we figured all this stuff out. When we haven't figured out a thimble, compared to what God has in the universe. But nevertheless, we can see atoms today. Not only that, we can see lower, we can see beyond the atom structure now. And we've learned a lot about the building blocks that God uses in physical matter. But eventually, as you move down the chain to the subatomic particles, right, below atoms, you get down to protons, neutrons, quarks, gluons, further down, you eventually reach, guess what? An invisible world where they can't see as eventually it just vanishes. And no one really knows how it all holds together. How they spin at incredible speeds and all these kind of things. No one really knows how does this work. We can't even see what's going on. Did you know 99.9% .9 of an atom is empty space? 99.9% .9 of an atom is empty space. That point one is all the dense and mass there. Space, if um, if you look at the uh, the, the space inside an atom, 
if you took an atom and made it the size of a stadium, right, the, the free space, the empty space, uh, would look like, or, or the density, the mass, the point one, would look the size of a P. Everything else would be the empty space. And that's an atom. So e inside the atom structure of this wood, you've got that happening trillions and trillions of times. Amazing. God does all these things. The rest is just empty space. But then exactly, then that begs the question, what is empty space? Did you know that scientists and philosophers actually think about these things? Then they start to think, what is empty space? Theory of relativity, and you've got, you know, Einstein looking at it. You know, what, ha, ha, what is empty space? Is it really empty? In the cosmos, scientists are puzzled by empty space. Uh, did you ever, ever hear the term dark matter? Dark matter is no definable elements, and yet they know something's there. But they can't tell. They know it's there, and it, it actually, they can actually get some sort of return that there's something there, and yet there's nothing there. Matter that can't be, it's matter that can't be observed, yet they know is there. That sounds like someone, right? <laughs> he's not dark, he's light, right? But exactly as the Spirit describes it through Paul, invisible. Things visible or invisible. Paul's saying, hey, I'm not sure, I'm not the greatest scientist in the world, but the Holy Spirit told me that there's a lot of invisible and visible. And that's all I'm going to leave you with, Paul's like, Wait till whoever writes Hebrews, then they'll tell you even more about this. And they did. But empty space, all these things are a mystery. It's still a mystery how it's all held together. And yet, guess what? It's not a mystery. Because we, we can see it right in verse 17. And he, capital he is who? Jesus. Is before all things, and in him all things consist. In him, it all holds together. The atom structure, the subatomic. Jesus said, it's the word of my power that holds it all together. <laughs> you know, if God releases, you ever seen the power of one atom bomb when they, when they split an atom? <laughs> Imagine if God said, release all the atoms in the universe. Can you imagine the power? One atomic reaction is incredible. God releasing Trillions upon trillions upon quadrillions, infinite number, great power. Psalm 92, 5 says, O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. That's an understatement for the psalmist, right? Your thoughts are very deep. That covers a lot, right? Just very deep. And Jesus is the creator of all this depth. All that science has figured out, it still has so far to go. They're looking at storing data today, you know, um, you know data center. Looking at storing data on atoms because the, the, the ability to store would be infinite. But the incomprehensible expanse of the universe. You ever, have you ever tried understanding how big the universe is? And you realize that we're this tiny little speck that would be invisible in the universe, but the expanse of it, the mysteries of the subatomic world, all these things testify to the power of God, and Jesus spoke it into existence. Spoke it into existence. He created it all. We don't have time to turn there, but you know John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? All things were made by Him. 
Without him, nothing was made that was made. Read Hebrews 1. Also talks about Jesus being the creator. Jesus demonstrated his power over creation too in his earthly ministry. If you ever wonder, well, did he ever make it clear he was creator? I think walking on water is a pretty good testimony. How about you? How about when you just take some fish and loaves and create a whole bunch more? That's creation right in front of your eyes. If you can take a few fish, a few loaves, and say, oh, by the way, we're going to feed five to 15,000 people, and it's going to keep multiplying, that's creation on the spot. He was creating fish and loaves right there. He, he said, you know, I can make these rocks start singing if I want to, right? All of these things he demonstrated over the wind, over the waves, over water, turning water into wine, just created. So, you know, right now, God does that all the time. Rain falls, goes into the ground, goes into things called a grape. Eventually, it comes back out as grape juice and eventually wine. That process only happens because God made it happen that way. That's a very complex thing that we take for granted. It still blows my mind that a bunch of dirt comes out as an orange. Right? Does it ever blow your mind and things like that? That you're like, I plant this, a bunch of dirt, and out comes a banana. <laughs> God's creative work is always happening. People just don't think about it. But Jesus, he, he, he proved turning water into wine. He would heal people of sickness. He even raised people from the dead. The power over his creation. He created it. He owns it. And the missionaries, when they went to foreign countries, you know, people, a lot of times people in the natives in other countries had a better concept of the creator. If, you know, they'd ask a native, if you create this canoe, who owns it? And they'd say, the creator. So when they showed them that God owns it all, they had no problem believing that. They're like, if you make it, you own it. And Jesus, he created it. He owns it all. Now, Jesus... Um, we know he also had dominion over that invisible world. No one else saw this 40-day temptation of Jesus and Satan, but Jesus was there, right? No one saw when he took Jesus up to a high mountain. This is in the spirit realm. Jesus showed dominion over the spirit realm, casting demons out, the invisible as well as the visible. He, in his earthly ministry, proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was the creator of it all. Everyone was subject to him. He not only defeated Satan, by the way, in the wilderness, and then he defeated Satan on the cross, and then he defeated Satan again at the grave, right? Three places, in the wilderness, at the cross, and at the tomb. He defeated Satan all three places. Satan laid a trap three times, lost three times, right? But defeating Satan, just so you know, I'm guessing you do, but in case you don't, it isn't in any way, shape, or form some match of equals, right? Like, well, that's a good matchup. No. Jesus was the creator of all things. Guess what? He created Satan too. Not as Satan, but as Lucifer, a fallen angel. In the beginning, Lucifer was to be the leader of worship. He was to be a worshiper of God and lead others in the service and adoration of God and be a faithful servant of God, just like Gabriel and Michael. But Satan fell when he was lifted up with pride and he was cast out of heaven. His power against Jesus is zilch. 
Zero. Satan has no power over Jesus. Doesn't mean he didn't try. He's trying against us, but Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against us either. Not because of us. Thankfully, Jesus has our back. Isn't that great? If we're supposed to get behind him, right? Just get behind him. But he tried nonetheless. He had no power over Jesus, but Satan still gave it everything he had. It had already been foreordained. God said that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the earth and that he would absolutely achieve victory. If Jesus said it's going to get done, it's going to get done. He's the creator. Satan had about as much power over Jesus as an apple would or a grain of sand or a snowflake. You say, well, why would you name such crazy things? Because they're inanimate objects. They don't have any power over, you know. You walk by an apple, it's not going to jump off the cart and start attacking you. You could step on it or something like that, but they're inanimate objects. Satan has no more power over Jesus than a spoon, any kind of inanimate object. Which brings us to our final view this evening of the all-encompassing grace and glory of Christ, the last thing we'll look at tonight, his authority, his authority. We see that he's the creator. We see each of these things, his deliverance, his redemption, his revelation, his creation, last, his authority. All things were created through him and for him. End of verse 16. Everything's for him. Everything's for him. You mean my life is for him? Yep. My job? Yep. How about our kids? Yep. Marriage? Yep. How about this church? Yep. How about my not-so-great talents? Yep. Whatever it is. Simply put. Jesus is Lord of all, and all means all. All. Every molecule, every moment and time, whether it be past, present, future, every cell, every creature, every star, every galaxy, every soul, every human body, every nation, every ruler, every kingdom, every angel, every demon, every thought, every word, everything is under him. It all belongs to him. It's him, not some denomination, not Calvary Chapel, as amazing as we are, right? You know, not Calvary Chapel, not a pastor, not a priest, not a pope, not some philosophy of ministry, but Christ alone is head of the church. It says right here, and he is the head of the body of the church. I'm not the head of anything. Nobody. He is the head of the church. He's its author. He's its priest. He's its ruler. He's its shepherd. Thank goodness he's the shepherd, right? Because every other shepherd fails. Anything placed above him, certainly in the body of Christ, and Paul's telling the Colossians, anything that the church of Colossae would place above Jesus is idolatry. And by the way, people in the church, many things have been placed above Jesus. I, I'm not saying they always mean it this way. It starts out just kind of innocuous and unwittingly, but soon people's ministries are above Jesus, which is idolatry. And by the way, if that were to happen, God will eventually uproot it because Jesus will not be second to the very church he's created. He's the firstborn from the dead, it says here. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? He's the firstborn from the dead. It means that in him, in him, the future resurrection, the future resurrection to all those 
of eternal life is only found in him. All the resurrection, the resurrection includes everyone who's ever put their faith in Christ comes through him. He's the firstborn of the dead. Firstborn, right? Comes out of the grave. Everyone in the resurrection comes through him. <coughs> only in him. His authority extends over life and death, doesn't it? Time and eternity. He's outside of time. He has time, but he has eternity as well. It all belongs to him. Revelation 1 asserts, he says he has the keys to death and life. The keys to death and life. No one else has those keys. Satan doesn't have those keys. He's bound for a thousand years. Eventually, he's bound forever. He holds, it says, that all in all things, at the end of verse 18, that he may have the preeminence. The preeminence, the Greek word, protuo, the preeminence, which means first place over everything. That's what preeminence means. First place, protuo, first place over everything. Christ is before all things. He's over all things, spiritual and material realm. He has authority over all things. Remember the, uh, the Roman centurion, he realized, Jesus, he says, I'm a man of authority, but I can tell you have authority over everything. Jesus like, you got it right, I do. Jesus, in Revelation 19, 16, and Paul also used the same term in 1 Timothy 6, 15, proclaimed, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Right? He's king of kings and lord of lords. This is all the kings that have ever lived, by the way, and all the lords that have ever lived. He is already, now here's the thing, we want to, as we're coming to a close, get this in your head. You should know it, but it's good to re-know it. Jesus is already, already, not in the future, now, he has already, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 27, he has put all things under his feet. It's present state, Jesus is already ruling over the universe. So, well, that's weird because North Korea looks like a mess. That's really weird because Russia seems kind of messed up. America seems a bit messed up. You know, we can go on down the list, right? He's already, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he has put all things under his feet. Present state. Hebrews 12, 2, and actually Hebrews says it three times, by the way, that he endured the cross, but this last part it says three times, despising the shame, so he, he finished the work, it is finished at the cross, right? And he sat down at the right hand of who? God the Father. He sat down at the right, and he made earth his footstool. Jesus has already asserted full authority and has already retaken the throne, whether anyone is aware of it or not. He's already sitting on the throne. Many Christians don't act like he's sitting on the throne. They act like, well, you know, I'll do whatever my boss says, but Jesus... He's kind of cool with me setting my own agenda. He really kind of lets me kind of run my own life. But I do let him in every now and then when I show up to church, right? No, no, he's already in authority. He's fully taken his throne. And I've, I say this every now and then, I remind you again, all truths are not equal. True truths are really important. Jesus is Lord is a vital truth, 
The color of my eyes is not important. But if I tell you they're brown, I'm telling you the truth, but it's not that important. My shirt being green tonight, as attractive a shirt as it is, <laughs> is not that important. It has no eternal significance. If I had worn a pink one, blue one, green one, doesn't matter. But Jesus is Lord, that is a true truth. All truths are not equal. This is a truth that God wants everyone to know, that he's King of kings and Lord of lords. But Christ, he's eternally secured the deed with the resurrection. He's now the owner, the ruler, and judge over everything. Amen? It's like a mortgage company that purchases your mortgage. You ever had this happen where you thought you had a mortgage with this company, and then all of a sudden you get this notice say, we have now purchased your mortgage. We're now, we're now the owner of your mortgage, right? Now, they send you a letter informing you that they now own the deed to your house. Whether you open the envelope or not or just think it's junk mail doesn't change the fact they now own the mortgage to your house. It doesn't matter if you don't know that they really, that wasn't junk mail. Whoops, we threw that away. I thought that was just another piece. No, they actually have your mortgage. They have the ownership and the authority. Jesus has the ownership whether the world realizes it or not. Amen? He's already purchased the deed. He's already Lord of all. Is he fully your Lord of all? Is he fully Lord above all in your life? Does he have the preeminence in your life? Someday, as the scriptures proclaim, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Those who bow now, it's a blessing to bow now, isn't it? We'll experience the love and the mercy and the goodness of God for all eternity. And not only that, we'll have the privilege of worshiping him in all his glory. It won't be a bummer to have to go to worship in heaven. It'll be a privilege to worship him in heaven. Edward Perrinet, he was a missionary to India and wrote and published in 1779 the words, to all hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem, that crown, and crown him Lord of all. You know, this hymn has been called, published in 1779 by this missionary to India, it's been called the National Hymn of Christendom. And rightly so, as our enti the entirety of our faith is all about Jesus. Amen? That's what we looked at tonight. All five things, we, it's all about him. And the more we make it less about us, the more joy we'll have in our life. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. Lord, it truly is all about you. And in this room... Lord, in our various ways, we ask that you cleanse us and forgive us of even the small things that have taken over the preeminence of you as Lord and Master and Ruler and Shepherd and King of our lives. Lord, we love you, but we want to love you more. We want to get ready to worship you in heaven. Lord, may we continue to grow in your grace, purchased by your blood, pulling us out of darkness into this light. We thank you, Lord, that you've saved us. Help us now to live this public witness that you demonstrated in your earthly ministry, your death, and your burial, and your resurrection. Jesus, it is all about you. And may we see that more and more with spiritual eyes. In your name we pray. Amen.